Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Circle of Two, released November 1st, 1981. It was written by Thomas Headley Jr., based on a novel by Marie-Therese Baird, directed by Jules Dassin, and released by United Artists. Actor Matt Jones was born the same day this film was released. Happy birthday, Matt Jones. I know him best as Badger from Breaking Bad. Hey, Jesse! Hey, man! Yo, man! What up? Badger? But he also does a lot of voice work on account of his cool, raspy voice, including Hector on Sanjay and Craig. He's Boove Kyle in DreamWorks' home film and TV series. And he's Wedge in the Final Fantasy VII remake. Hmm. Marie-Therese Baird's Lesson in Love was published in 1971. Eight years later, a film adaptation began production and premiered at the 1980 Cannes Film Festival. Even on set, actress Tatum O'Neill was uncomfortable with the role's required nudity and negotiated to at least keep her legs covered, as they were scarred with third-degree burns from a recent car accident, which had sent her sliding across pavement. Ooh, Couldn't ouch. find any more detail than that. She was 38 years younger than co-star Burton at the time, but the characters were 44 years apart. Burton's wife at the time, Susan Hunt, was 22 years younger and closer in age to O'Neill than Burton. The film has been retitled most places to Obsession, despite having a titular theme song, probably to make it sound more salacious than it is. Mm. Do you guys recall the last time we discussed A Circle of Two? You mean this movie or the no, concept the of concept a of circle, a circle of, two. of two? Circle of friends? A small circle of friends. My hint was going to be that it started as a circle of three, but we joked at the end that since Leonardo had died, it should be called a small <laughs> line segment of friends. Yeah. <laughs> this reminded me of a uh, of a bit from uh, Harmon, uh, Harmon Quest, where they're just trying to describe where these two guys are standing. It's like, Okay, there's two guys. It's like, yeah, but are they Where next? Are they? are they next to each other? Yeah. Are they in a line? Any two people are always in a line. <laughs> <laughs> we start in a girl's locker room as girls play monkey in the middle with another girl's clothes. The camera finds two girls reading the local movie showtimes. Count Dracula and his vampire bride? They find the triple X-rated listing for Bed of Satin. For some reason, they can't both go. Tatum O'Neill as Sarah Norton wins a little coin flip game they play. After all the other girls leave, Sarah emerges fully dressed from a locker and leaves in the opposite direction. We hard cut to the theater as Sarah arrives late to the show. Judging from the audio and the rating earlier, it's a very sexual film, and Sarah is bothered by an overweight man in the row behind her who offers a cigarette, even though she already has one in her mouth. I, th I think she was he was offering her a light. But either way, she's just grossed out yeah. by him and, and moves forward a row. She moves up a couple rows to escape him, and very quickly, the star of Bed of Satin is climaxing, and Sarah looks hypnotized by it. Sarah's friends wait in her bedroom and wonder where she is. Boy, must be a porno gone with the wind. As she leaves the theater, at the end, Sarah bumps a sleeping man will come to know as Ashley St. Clair, played by Richard Burton. He asks how she got in here, and she runs away. Why is he here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he even says himself, how did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> 
I bought a ticket to an earlier movie and I just stayed around until the porn started. Like, I, I have a little bit of a problem with this, mostly because I can't really imagine anybody going to a porn theater. Like, it just seems it like... It seems weirdly crowded. It seems like such a foreign concept to me, but I I understand that there weren't other ways to watch porn at yeah, this time. Yeah, I think, yeah, in the 70s, I think mm-hmm. there so were just a I lot just, of people here. I, I, I guess I, I, I find it hard to, to have a good perspective on who or who would not go into one of these films. Right. <laughs> Uh, behind her in the theater, we can see Ryan O'Neill, her father, sitting with Lee Majors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the two of them came to this theater together. <laughs> it's Lee Majors. <laughs> <laughs> At home, Sarah's dad says her friends Smitty and Raspoli are waiting for her upstairs. On the way to her room, she checks in with mom, who is trying on a pair of teenage jeans she bought because she saw them in Sarah's closet. I thought this was going to play a bigger part that her mom was like, obsessed with being a teenager but they kind of drop it after the first 10 minutes of the movie yeah her friends ask sarah to tell her the plot of bed of satin beat for beat but what kind of terrible friends make somebody else watch a movie for them and then describe it (laughs) shot for shot (laughs) her friends promise to uphold the secret before she spells out the plot to them we cut to a crowded restaurant where mr ashley st Clair from the theater is eavesdropping on a nearby couple's spat when the girl runs from the table closer to camera we can see it's sarah and she hides behind a pillar beside Ashley. He invites her to join him at the table. She borrows a cigarette and he lights it for her before she recognizes him from the theater. You're the dirty old man. Ashley offers to buy her something, and she orders a cappuccino. They confess simultaneously that they are 60 and 16 years old. Even though she's 15, we'll learn later. She's about to be 16. It suddenly occurs to her that the name he said, Ashley St. Clair, is a famous artist, probably a rich one even. Ashley St. Clair intense like how much would you charge to paint me i haven't painted in 10 years he asks about her hobbies and offers to read the poetry that her teacher doesn't care for yeah he, he asks her well what do you do it's like what do you mean what I'm does she child, do child, <laughs> she mentions her father is an egyptologist and her mom tries to run her love life <laughs> i love the detail that her father is an <laughs> egyptologist is never mentioned again yeah. there's no mummies in this movie do you guys recall the last certified Egyptologist character we had on the show? Awakening? No. Um, oh, uh, the Sphinx. Sphinx. Oh, was that after? That was after. Leslie Ann Down was an Egyptologist <laughs> who, who had who never spoke not a word of Egypt. <laughs> of Egypt? <laughs> That's what their language is and, called, and, Egypt. <laughs> and she also couldn't believe how big the pyramids were. She's like, oh my God, they're huge. <laughs> Shouldn't you have at least read about them? They're so small in this book. (laughs) (laughs) According to the legend. (laughs) She stands to leave when she thinks she's in the clear, but her boyfriend Paul returns. While she hides behind the column again, she hands a portfolio of her work to Ashley to read. He says he's in the phone book when she wants it back. She has one last question on her way out. Are you gay? No. I always like to know if a guy's gay. I said I'm not gay. (laughs) Stop pressuring me. (laughs) That night, she prepares to call Ashley St. Clair out of the phone book, and we cut to him answering at home. She claims that she called to make sure he knew her name, but it's all over the paper she gave him. He only has glowing things to say about her work. You have a responsibility to write. You have an absolutely natural talent. They arrange a second date, and he offers up his own home this Sunday. Do I have to wait until Sunday? They settle on tomorrow morning. 
The next day, she rides a bike with a basket to Ashley's property. She finds him outside his farm, wrapping a tree in cardboard to keep the rabbits from chewing on it. I wasn't sure you'd come. I always come when I'm by myself. She sets down her bike and they head inside. Nice music. Vivaldi. Do you guys recall the last bit of Vivaldi we heard? Oh, uh, the competition? No. Looker? Looker. That's what he plays for his Friday surgery morning. Let's have Vivaldi today. Vivaldi on Friday? My feet. In the second floor studio of his barn, she finds an enormous art collection. Ashley offers her various non-alcoholic options, and she counters with an order of white wine. Fruit juice and cola. Could I have some white wine, please? Do you guys recall the last time we saw an underage Tatum O'Neill enter a man's home and order wine as a beverage? <laughs> <laughs> Little darlings. That's right. Can I get you something? Coke here, milk. You want apples? Like apples? Want an apple? Uh, I'd like some of that, please. You're underage. <sighs> Richard Burton obliges in a way Armand Asante did not. They discuss her <laughs> writing, and in particular Sarah's thoughts on Hamlet, who she abhors. Ashley speaks in the Mad Prince's defense. Ashley wonders aloud if her distaste for Hamlet isn't, in part, misplaced anger with her recent ex, Paul. He hands her a glass of wine, and she asks to see him again sometime. So this is, whatever's in this glass is completely clear. Right. It's it's, it's probably water, hopefully. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if it's water for the set or if it's some kind of other distilled... Maybe it's vodka. ...wine spirit. Because <laughs> I was trying to figure it out. It's like, well, this isn't... It's clearly not white wine. Is it clearly not white wine? It's clearly... Because it's clear. But white wine is clear. It's kind of yellowy. It's yellowy. You would, you would see a yellow tint. On this bad VHS quality <laughs> transfer? I, I think I think that you would still see it. I, I looked very carefully. All right. But the, there's also all these weird character choices. Like she keeps turning her head to the side, looking at nothing, and says, can you believe this guy? Like like she's like- Talking to herself. Yeah, talking oh, to an audience. Yeah, talking to the audience. is like, what is with this, yeah. these weird performances? Later, we see her talking with a friend and confessing to have spent the whole day with an older man. I have the strongest kind of feeling for him. Her friend is grossed out when she hears the man is 60. Oh, Jesus. He's robbing the cradle. No, you're robbing the grave. We cut to Ashley jogging along a path by the beach and the two girls spy on him from behind a tree. He stops his jogging to take a seat and catch his breath and notices an even older man near him and presumably sees himself in the future. We cut to a ferry heading out onto the water and Sarah and Ashley watch a dueling banjo set on the deck. Later, we see him telling her stories about how William Blake used to paint naked. He tells her about a muse of Blake's, a young girl who inspired him. It's clear he thinks the same of Sarah and he may be on the verge of a return to painting. How did it end? The impossibility of it all drove her to suicide. She drowned herself, just like the girl in Hamlet. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go home. I just want to be with you. Back in his studio, Ashley shows her a lot of his unfinished work. He escorts her onto an easel and then cranks her a couple feet into the air. You are the most perplexing, intriguing girl. Eventually, she coaxes him into making real art again, starting with flowers he draws with a lit candle under suspended paper. He tells her the names of flowers are the most beautiful words, but unfortunately the first one he chooses has an unfortunate connotation now. Columbine, Veronica, <laughs> Violence, Rosemary. 
Now he gets Sarah to join the fun by tracing the form of a woman with a flamethrower. She is moved by the way he describes <laughs> art. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a blowtorch. Throwing flames. Yeah, but but yes, he, say, he the candle also throws flames. Then right. that definition. exactly, they're both flamethrowers. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but but when you phrase it as drawing a woman with a flamethrower, you're you mean <laughs> she's you, not you, holding a flamethrower <laughs> in the painting. <laughs> Utilizing a flamethrower to draw a woman. Well, it's I a figured blowtorch. we're theming the art right now. It's all composed with fire. It's like the blowtorch that was in. Um, What'd you call it? The demon seed. Sure, yeah. Right? It was like that kind of blowtorch, right? Just that it w- was like a... Big old canister. Yeah. Wait, mm. demon seed or demonoid? Demon seed. Oh, okay. When they're down in the basement and like the, the assistant comes and tries to grab yeah. the blowtorch. Oh, yes, yeah. Because yeah. there's also one in demonoid when they're trying to burn the hand when it's stuck through the stained glass. She's moved by the way he describes art and she wishes he was making some. She promises him a million dollars if he'll paint her here in the studio. And we cut to him sketching her in charcoal. The next morning, Sarah is in a good mood until she finds her mother and ex-boyfriend Paul at the breakfast table. Hi, Sarah. I invited Paul for breakfast. Sarah leaves and mom is pissed about it. Dad demands a truce between them and claims Sarah is dumb for pretending she deserves a private life. You've got a 16th birthday coming up and I want it to be nice. Now will you end this war? For me. Okay. Right on top of a lot of dialogue that made me hate him, her dad suddenly gets the funniest line in the film so far. Daddy, Mm -hmm. did you ever have an affair with a young girl? Sarah, I'm old enough to be your father. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing about the thing with her father, because I I can't remember the exact way that the conversation went, but she says, did you ever have an affair with your student, one of your students? No. Would you tell me if you did? No. Right. And I yeah. was like, oh. Mm. No, I think that's just what her dad would say in this situation. If he's willing to joke about, like, are you hitting on me, daughter? <laughs> we cut back to Ashley painting Sarah, and she asks if they can ever go on a boat trip. He invites her friends along if they'd like. If they'd like to come, they'd drop dead to come. He asks if she's writing, and she says mostly about the two of them. She also confesses that she's kept her visits secret from her parents. Digging through the stacks later, Sarah finds a nude oil painting. He says it's a lover of his, a friend named Claudia. Ashley says he and Claudia kept their lives separate, and Sarah leaves for the day. After she leaves, Ashley phones Claudia to announce that he's painting again. She tells an acquaintance in the hopes that her friend's higher-profile gallery might help Ashley to sell more work. The man seems over Ashley's paintings, especially after a 10-year break. He offers Claudia his contract for Ashley's work, but she urges him to at least see the new stuff. Back in the studio, Sarah is invited to see the finished painting of herself and is floored by it. Ashley is less pleased, but blames being out of practice. Sarah urges him to paint her over and over until he gets it right, and he gives her a big hug. We cut away to Ashley at some sort of gift shop, looking for something to buy. In the corner of the shop, he finds the old man from the table by the beach, and when the man gets grouchy about him staring, he asks if he can paint the man, offering to pay him to model for it. Sarah shows up, and Ashley shows her some creepy animatronic monkey toys. What is this? I think they're like taxidermied monkeys built around animatronics. This is bonkers. First of all, I didn't know that something like this existed. And now you want all of them. Well, (laughs) but her response, like him being like, first of all, I think you want this thing, which is, first of all, several feet wide and Mm -hmm. several feet tall it's It's enormous we wouldn't be able to fit this in my car to get it back to your house and he's like first of all to think that she would want that is weird and then i would be mad that he thought i wanted that 
And then that she did, or at least she said right. she did, yeah. is equally weird. Sarah pretends they're too expensive and not a terrible gift before <laughs> finding a hat to wear instead. <laughs> she notices the old man in the corner and comments on his strange face. Ashley buys her the hat, and we cut to them having lunch on a dock somewhere. It's a good hat. It is a good hat. Could have had monkeys, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They seem to be drawing stares from a lot of strangers who should just assume that they're father and daughter or granddaughter and grandfather. I don't know why they're assuming these people are on a date. She puts her arm around him as they leave, and Ashley thinks they're testing their luck. You want to get me arrested? Maybe they put us in solitary. <laughs> That's not what solitary means. <laughs> After they pass, we notice Sarah's ex, Paul, is sitting in a parked car watching them with a shocked look on his face. Back at the studio, Sarah hits Ashley with the central questions of the story. Do you find me attractive? Have you ever thought about going to bed with me? And all his answers are yeses. She invites him to bed now, and he turns her down. Is it because you think I'm a virgin? Because if you think I am... You are. I am. Suddenly, she pleads with him to relieve her of the burden of virginity. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Tatum O'Neill pleading with an adult to relieve her of the burden of virginity? You can have this one, Richard. Uh, is it Little Darlings? It is Little Darlings. Have we had her in anything else yet? I don't think so. No. But I keep almost saying Little Foxes. That's a different oh, that's movie. Yeah. Well, just foxes. Ashley claims that he has heart problems, and she admits that she's watched him exercise and knows he's in decent shape. He angrily reminds her that he is 60. 60 years old. And I can kick, paint, and kick. I'm 60. But she doesn't care, and she demands a kiss which he acquiesces to. Sarah steps into another room to collect her things, and while she's away, Claudia shows up, somewhat unexpectedly. I, uh, I wasn't expecting you till the 15th. This is the 15th. Oh, I've been working on it. He points her to his latest work, and she's impressed with it. She gives him a big hug when Sarah reemerges. Sarah claims she has to go and compliments Claudia's shoes on the way out for some reason. I didn't even see the shoes. I don't know what's so great about it. <laughs> Must be cool, though. I have to check it out again. Very quickly, Claudia concludes that Ashley is in love with this child, and she is equal parts repulsed and disappointed. At home later, Sarah's mother intercepts a call from Ashley and asks who he is. When Sarah answers that he's a painter, she puts two and two together. Not Ashley Sinclair. What have you got to do with Ashley Sinclair? Answer me. He paints me. Sarah doesn't want to have this conversation right now, and her mother wanders away in a daze, no doubt presuming this man has already raped her child. My God, Sarah, he's old enough to be your father. He's old enough to be your father. Later, we see Ashley get a call from Sarah, and we cut right to him on a boat with Sarah and her friends, and he's leading them in a French song. Dans un cave, oui, a du Dans un cave, oui, oui, oui. Dans un cave, non, non, non. Dans un cave, oui, a du Dans un cave, oui, oui. Later, the friends are packing up the boat as Sarah and Ashley enjoy a picnic. Sarah reads him a poem she wrote about pomegranates, and he's having an out-of-body experience and disgusting himself with their age gap. Back at the art studio, Ashley admits out loud that he's happy with his recent artwork and that he shouldn't have let critics psych him out of working for the last 10 years. We see an insert of Sarah's hands retrieving a cigar from a cigar box, and then we cut outside as Paul approaches Ashley's barn home. He peeks through a crack in the door. Inside, Ashley puts a couple paintings away, and when he turns around, he sees Sarah standing there fully nude with a cigar, obscured from the waist down by a chair, 
and Ashley immediately orders her to get dressed. She was 16 at the time this scene was shot, but the character is just 15. In her autobiography, she admits to being completely uncomfortable shooting this scene. Get dressed. My body's as good as Claudia's any day. Get dressed. He kicks some of his tools across the floor, and Paul, through the crack in the door, is shocked by what he sees inside. He wanders away from the door and squats in the grass with his head in his hands. On the way out, Sarah and Ashley are weirdly totally over the confrontation. Tell me, why the cigar? I felt naked without it. <laughs> oh, charming little joke. After the trauma. They hug and part ways, and Sarah passes the creepy old man with the weird face from the toy shop on her way out. She walks her bike through a cornfield, and halfway through it, she encounters Paul. She tells him that he's in rough shape, and Paul is having a breakdown. He accuses her of sleeping with anyone but him and then attacks her. He pins her down on the ground and tries to tear away her clothes when she finally gets a grip on a rock and bashes him over the head with it. She runs back to Ashley and when he checks on the unconscious boy, he tells her to call the police. We cut to the hospital where we learn Paul's skull is fractured but he'll survive. When Sarah's parents arrive to pick her up, they give Ashley some very angry glares. They demand Ashley leave and we cut right to Sarah being locked in her room at home. Well, also, everyone's like being really kind of accusatory towards Sarah for having bashed her rapist in the head with yeah. a rock. Yeah, they kind of gloss over that whole fact. And she still feels guilty about it days later. And it's like, what? No, why? Why at all would you feel guilty for that? I'm sad that he didn't die. <laughs> they demand Ashley leave and we cut right to Sarah being locked in her room at home. When dad opens the door, she tries to rush past him and he grabs her. Her parents try to explain why they can't allow her to continue a relationship with a 60-year-old man. They promise to keep her locked up until she agrees to stop seeing him. Her dad also slaps her. Right. Mom. Dad. I won't eat until you let me out of here. We cut back to the studio where Ashley is painting the old man. He tries to phone Sarah, but her parents intercept the call and hang up on him. He calls more than once. Like, yeah. what, what do you What do you think is going to happen when you call now they're gonna let her talk mm -hmm. i bet now they'll let her talk mom brings sarah a meal and true to her word sarah ignores it she just sits in a room wearing the hat ashley bought her more phone call attempts from ashley are interrupted and more meals are delivered in vain suddenly ashley is at the door of their home and rings the bell incessantly until sarah's parents are screaming at him even after it's been made very clear that she is safe here and they only want him to leave but ashley won't fucking go away mom makes the most poignant comment you please let me make Mr. Sinclair, you may be older than we are, but we don't need your advice. Now, it's obvious we can't appeal to your sense of decency, but maybe, just maybe, you have a sense of the ridiculous. Because you are ridiculous, Mr. Sinclair. It's crazy that this character was played as fairly intelligent, though perverted up to this point, but he actually thought he was going to talk his way past her parents into mm -hmm. a 15-year-old's bedroom. They close the door in his face again, and thankfully he's done ringing the bell. In Sarah's room on the morning of her birthday, her friends carry in her breakfast and demand she speak to them, but they get little out of her. A psychiatrist, Dr. Reed, is allowed into the room. The psych spends a few minutes trying to explain to Sarah why her relationship with Ashley is impossible. Boy, is my mother a low life. Yes. And among other things, she wanted me to ascertain that you are still a virgin. <laughs> How do you do that? Radar? Forceps? Jesus. It's already crazy that the mom thought she could force the psychiatrist to ask Sarah the question, but even crazier that she follows through on it. 
That is a question for the police. Why are they not involved already? There should be police talking to both parties here. Very quickly, Sarah convinces the psychiatrist that she should be allowed to be raped by this artist. Now, I don't want to be sick. I don't want to waste away. That old gentleman happens to mean more to me than anything else. And the next time I eat will be with him. Insanely, Dr. Reed agrees that they should just let the child and the old man be lovers. Downstairs, Dr. Reed encourages Sarah's parents to allow her to continue seeing Ashley St. Clair. Mom is unmoved by the doctor's complete failure of an argument. I saw a woman up there, a woman, deeply in love, and you have got to let her live it. Doctor, you need a doctor. Dr. Reed should lose her medical license for this recommendation. She even tries to imply that by withholding Ashley, that her parents are subjecting Sarah to illegal torture. They're like, it might even be illegal that you're doing this to her. And it's like, no, I guarantee you it's not illegal to prevent your daughter from being raped by a creepy old man. Just as she's about to leave, dad decides to throw the biggest possible 16th birthday he can manage to lure Sarah out of her room. This'll he, work. Yeah, that ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. He enlists the help of her friends to invite all the people she'd want to see there. So, of course, one of them is like, oh, I know, that gross old man from the barn. <laughs> <laughs> she takes a taxi out to Ashley's home and finds moving men packing it up. They tell her he's moved back to New York. That night, Sarah is steered across the room by the sound of violins, and when she opens her bedroom window, she finds a full-scale birthday party in the front lawn for some reason. She didn't hear them setting this up at all, but now it's here. A collection of inserts of the guests' faces indicate that she is looking for someone who is not here. She climbs out the window into the branches of a tree in the yard, which she could presumably have done during this entire incarceration yeah. <laughs> to go see Ashley, but here she threatens to cake her own life. <laughs> Did any of you ever hear of someone committing suicide by diving into a birthday cake? I bet you never heard of that before. One of her friends coaxes her back into the bedroom with a lie that Ashley is waiting for her in New York, and now she has to find a way to get to him, no matter the cost. Her friends are terrified to have planted the idea. Think. Will you think for a minute? What could you possibly do in New York? I could sleep with him. I could kill him. Sarah's sneakier friend steals money from her parents' wallet as they sleep, and we cut to Sarah arriving in New York asking for directions from strangers on the street. I don't know what address she came here with. Um, yeah. The boxes had an address on them. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah. So I guess her friend memorized that? I guess. Eventually, she finds herself at Claudia's building, and when the doorman tries to call her up, he gets no answer, so Sarah sits on a bench outside. We cut to Claudia's gallery as her more famous art gallery owner friend, Harold Bodell, paces by all the new Ashley St. Clair pieces, mostly paintings of the old man, a couple of Sarah. He agrees they're good work, but doubts that he can move them since general portraiture has gone out of style and Ashley's been MIA for a decade. Claudia speaks in Ashley's defense, but ineffectually. You owe Ashley some loyalty, Harold. He helped you make that strong gallery. Sadly, Claudia, loyalty's unprofessional. In response, Ashley accuses Harold of ripping him off over the years, even revealing that the man sold everything he bought for a 40% commission to other galleries which he also owned in secret. As a consolation prize, Harold offers Ashley a retrospective, which Ashley regards as the equivalent of a Lifetime Achievement Award, insinuating his career is already over. You'll have to wait until I'm dead for that. Both of you. We cut to Ashley and Claudia riding a taxi together, and she tells him he's too caught up in what happened in Toronto. 
It seems like she's criticizing him, not for being with a child, but for leaving her. I didn't turn a kid's head and then walk out. You did. They wouldn't let me see her. I'd have found a way to see her. I'd have broken into that 15-year-old girl's home <laughs> and kidnapped her. Why didn't you do that, 60-year-old man? When they get back to Claudia's building, the doorman informs her a guest is sleeping in the lobby, and they find Sarah here. She apologizes to Claudia for intruding, and Claudia says, No biggie, here are my keys. You two go fuck or whatever, and I'm going to go get drunk across the street. Ashley takes her upstairs. As soon as they're alone in the room together, Sarah explodes with anger at him for abandoning her. Ashley basically claims that leaving was the honorable thing to do, but Sarah points out that riling her up for weeks was pretty far from honorable. Was it honorable to make me fall in love with you? You knew what was happening. Why didn't you stop it? He tries to remind her of his age, and she doesn't care about the numbers. She's already done all the math in her head. When I'll be 60, you'll be 104. We'd make a great couple. Coincidentally, Tatum will be turning 60 this November. Meanwhile, Burton was dead from a stroke three years later in 84, before Tatum could legally drink. He wasn't even 60 yet. He was only 54 on the set of this film. If you remade this film right now and cast actors the same ages as these two, you could cast 16-year-old McKenna Grace, who just played Phoebe Spengler in Ghostbusters Afterlife, and Paul Rudd from Ghostbusters Afterlife as the old man. But you know what? <laughs> I, I would forgive absolutely anybody for falling in love with Paul Rudd. <laughs> but it's Richard Burton in this movie and Paul Rudd today are both 54 years old. That's crazy. He looks so old in this movie. I, I, I guess it's I just alcoholism. It's prime, for, prime for a remake. Here we go. Ashley walks around the room and takes the blame for letting their relationship carry on so long. He liked being wanted but couldn't escape a third-person view of himself as a gross old man falling in love with a child. And I kept saying... What the hell are you doing? I saw this old idiot making a fool of himself over a young girl. Lastly, he confesses his love for her, and she asks what he wants from her. He just wants for them to love each other forever from afar, and she agrees to. We cut back to the crowded subway as Sarah finds her way back home, and Ashley just watches her leave under the theme song, Circle of Two, written by Bernard Hoffer and Stanley J. Gleiber, and sung by Casey Sissick. Sissick had previously sung the title themes for You Light Up My Life, and the one and only in 77 and 78, and we fade to black for credits. The end. Circle of Two. So, this movie's pretty gross. But I don't I don't know that the movie is condoning the relationship. I don't know whose side I'm supposed to be on, and that bothers me that, that I don't know, like that the film isn't making it obvious which people are wrong, because I think we're still supposed to sympathize with this old man at the end, and I don't at all. Like, are, is he supposed to be a villain? I mean, I, th I think that the movie is amb ambiguous about it. I think you're right. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not clear how the movie feels about it. I don't think there's any ambiguity to what's going on and how appropriate it is. He, he shouldn't have talked to a child at a porno theater, and then he shouldn't have invited her to sit at a table with him the next day oh, at yeah. a restaurant. No, he makes wrong choices all over yeah. the place. For sure. I mean, it explains why he was in that porno theater, because he's just a perverted old man. But why doesn't he have more porn around his apartment? <laughs> There's only one naked picture, and it's tucked away. It should be everywhere. Everything should be naked, because that's clearly all this guy's thinking about. Yeah, but I mean, I think that he does have genuine feelings for her, because he's, yeah, not, absolutely. he's not trying to sleep with her. He's, he's trying to resist sleeping with her, because he actually does love her. Yeah, but that's also gross, uh, that you would fall in love with a child. That's also gross. 
on top of being sexually attracted to her. It's like, nope, just don't even consider that person for that. Don't talk to a person long enough for that to happen to you if that's a thing that you do as an old man. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I don't look at it as, as harshly as you do. I think that most men are disgusting. I 100% agree. And, you know, this just kind of seems normal because mostly uh, every single man you talk to will be attracted to a 16-year-old girl. But the fact that they're trying to get us to sympathize with this guy who's giving into his basest instincts. I don't know that they are. are. If we're supposed to hate him in that last scene, then I don't get that. I don't think that comes across. No, you're not necessarily supposed to hate him, but you're also not necessarily supposed to sympathize with him. I think that it's just kind of like, this is just a story. This just is. And then you you judge for yourself yeah. whether, whether or not this is acceptable or not. I, I still think that's such a strange way to do it. But either way, it was disturbing enough to really bother me. Well, I think that's the only way you can do it, is to not lean one way or the other if you're trying to get a mass appeal. <laughs> like, like... So some people can just go see this movie and go, oh, that's really gross. What a They're sweet really... love story. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's what you're going to get. You're going to get the other people and go, oh, well, I think that. I think that, honestly, that's why, why I'm mad about it is because they chose ambiguity so that anyone in the audience could see this and think this is acceptable and sweet because I think that. So now I'm going to ask out that 16-year-old that I keep seeing around town. And it's like, this movie has the potential to cause problems in the real world because people watching it won't know that they're supposed to hate this guy. Oh, bullshit. Like, I think that that's a crazy argument. I mean, y- you could use that argument for saying, well, these people shot other people in this movie. Then the- right, everyone's going to think that saying, that's acceptable. So, like, when, that's When stupid. we did the only one I laugh and people were like, oh, you should date that guy. And she was like, no, that's... That's gross. I'm way old. I'm old enough to be his mother. And they're like, well, didn't you see Harold and Maude? Like they're pointing out like, oh, but there was that movie and everyone thought that was so romantic. Like you should just do it. It's totally fine. Everything will be okay. And I could see people doing the same thing here and being like, oh, it's like, uh, it's like circle of two. You know, it's not that weird. You're 60 and she's 16. So what? It can be, it can be romantic still. And it's like, no, it's not romantic. It's just a crime. I don't know. I feel like people are going to think that way anyways, regardless of a movie. I think that there are people in the world who would act on it because pop culture said that this isn't gross, that it can be romantic. Yeah, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of things in pop culture that people can be discerning about without having to remove it from pop culture. Yeah. Uh, thumbs well, down for me, yeah. obviously. Well, it was a thumbs down for me, yeah. I, I, as, mu- as much as, as he is is in the wrong, she she's also pushing the limits of what is acceptable for herself as well and but she's a child right and and i get that you know she's she's it doesn't have a uh a, a, a mature experience with falling in love with people before but uh i think that the, some of the steps that she takes like appearing fully nude for him was just like what 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 prompted this well he had previously said yes i find you attractive and i want to take you to bed so those two things might have affected that in some way right i i I don't know (laughs) i think she thought she was going to get to have sex with him because he said he wanted to do that to her and he's a 60 year old man thumbs up or thumbs down jess uh you know i feel like it's i feel like you guys are being really harsh on it because of the concept of the movie and not the movie itself like i don't think it was that bad it it bothers me 
when a movie like this doesn't take an ethical stance on whether yeah. it's acceptable or not. All right. I'm going to be the outlier and give it a thumbs up. That's okay. Letterboxed, Richard? Uh, I have it at 139, uh, which puts it below final exam, but above Saturday the 14th. Okay. Jessica? All right. I have it at 89. It is below Kill and Kill Again, but above Backroads. I have it in 152, which is just under Smoky Bites the Dust and just above Just a Gigolo. Our director here was Jules Dassin. He previously directed Rafifi, He Who Must Die, and Phaedra. This was his last film. His son, Joe Dassin, is a well-known musician whose best-known song is probably Oh, Champs-Élysées, Oh, Champs-Élysées. The novel here was from Marie-Therese Baird. This was her only novel ever adapted to film. The writer was Thomas Headley Jr. He also wrote Flashdance and later Rick Springfield Vehicle, Hard to Hold. The music here came from Bernard Hoffer. He was later a composer on various popular hybrid Saturday morning cartoons, i.e. Silverhawks, Tiger Sharks, and Thundercats. The cinematographer here was Laszlo George. He previously lit Nothing Personal, Later Lights TV movies, Mazes and Monsters, and mostly TV movies from there on. The editor here was David Nicholson. His most recent credit was for editing The Brain in 88. Tatum O'Neill was Sarah Norton. O'Neill's pay was 250,000 pounds, half of Richard Burton's 500,000 pounds. Burton's eventual wife, Elizabeth Taylor, had played Velvet Brown in 1944's National Velvet, based on Enid Bagnold's novel of the same name, and Tatum O'Neill appeared as the same character in the film's 1978 sequel, International Velvet. O'Neill is possibly best known for her part in Paper Moon, alongside her father, for which she was awarded an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress at the age of eight for her first feature film. More recently, she was Maggie Gavin in 39 episodes of Rescue Me. We've also seen her on the show as Ferris in Little Darlings. I also read recently that she uh, hates that Oscar because at the Academy Award ceremony, her father was out on the set of another movie and her mom didn't come with her either. What? An eight-year-old kid went alone to the Oscars? Went alone to the Oscar. I mean, she, I'm sure she was accompanied by someone, yeah. but neither of her parents were there to see her win an Oscar at eight. That's insane. That's crazy. Norma DeLagnus played Raspoli. She was Brenda in Meatballs, Valedictorian in Middle-Aged Crazy, and Genie in Atlantic City. That's, I think, a coworker of Susan Sarandon's at the casino. Donna and Cavan played Smitty. She was Kathy Wilton in Heartbreak High. Ellen Ross Gibson played the gym teacher. She voices Cologne in Ranma One Half, Baba in Dragon Ball Z, and most recently she was a shop owner in Jurassic World Dominion. Richard Burton played Ashley St. Clair. He turned down Sea Wolves to do this, and it was his second-to-last film role before 1984's 1984. He's the on-again, off-again husband of Elizabeth Taylor. His daughter Kate Burton appears with another famous Burton, namely Jack Burton, in Big Trouble in Little China, in which she portrays Margot. He's in The Robe, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Night of the Iguana, Hamlet, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. My favorite work from him was probably Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He's also impersonated by Frank Cross in Scrooge after several homeless people mistake him for the actor. I swear by thee I forswear. Patricia Collins played Mrs. Norton. We've seen her so far in Nothing Personal and Phobia. Michael Wincott played Paul. So far on the show, he's been in Nothing Personal and Ticket to Heaven. He shows up in Curtains. Born on the 4th of July, The Doors, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, He's Top Dollar in The Crow, Philo Gant in Strange Days, Elgin in Alien Resurrection, Herb in Night of Cups, and more recently he was Antler's Holst in Jordan Peele's Nope. Daisy yeah. White. Oh, like, I, I, I totally did not recognize him no, not in at this all. movie. 
Wait, wh- where was he? He in was this movie? Paul. He was the what? boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I Isn't missed that. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know it was him at all. Daisy White played school secretary. Uh, she was the roommate in Curtains. BB Kaspari played a mime. <laughs> where was there a mime in this? I guess at just the, when they're walking around the docks. Yeah, like on the <laughs> or at the party. Side. They pulled that party together real fast. <laughs> oh yeah, maybe we got a mime there. for the birthday. BB <laughs> uh, uh, was also Gamla in Quest for Fire next season. Gordon Jocelyn played Antiquary. Gordon's also a five-star general in Dead Zone. Brendan McCain played Man at the Terrace. Uh, he's the voice of Miles Mayhem in seventy-five episodes of Mask, like the Hasbro yeah, yeah, Mask. Yeah. Still waiting on that movie. Yeah. A. Frank Ruffo played Man at the Terrace. He was Aldo in Dirty Work. That's the guy who owns the pizza place that Norm gets fired from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they said, uh, they were saying all this terrible stuff about uh, Italians and uh, especially about that Mussolini character. (laughs) Like he thinks he's going to be offended on behalf of Mussolini. He's also Capo in Boondock Saints 2, All Saints Day. Nuala Fitzgerald played Claudia Aldrich. She was Juliana Kelly in The Brood. Leslie Carlson played Doctor at the Hospital. Leslie was Briggs in The Neptune Factor, Graham in Black Christmas, Dr. Cheevers in The Fly, Barry Convex in Videodrome, and Brenner in The Dead Zone. So far on the show, we've seen him in Nothing Personal and Improper Channels. Kate Reed played Dr. Emily Reed. She was Dr. Ruth Leavitt in The Andromeda Strain, Margaret Dysart in Equus. We've seen her so far in Death Ship and Atlantic City. Patrick Patterson played one of the movers. He was the butcher in The Pit, the one who's like, Wait, yeah. aren't your parents out of town? Why do you need so much meat? Wally's neighbor in Kids in the Hall Brain Candy and Sheriff in Blues Brothers 2000. Pam Hyatt played Mrs. Smith. She's the mother of Zach Ward, a.k.a. Scott Fargus. She provides voices in Ewoks, Care Bears Movie 2, and Inuyasha the Movie 1 and 2. She's also Sarah's mother in Police Academy 3. Doug Smith played Mr. Smith. We saw him last as Seaman Number 1 in Death Ship. Elias Zaru played the doorman. He was the priest in Middle Age Crazy. He's a man in the crowd in Kidnapping of the President, and he's Mr. Narcopolis in Improper Channels. Narcopolis. Oh, I think that's the, uh, there's like a Greek couple that are there for domestic abuse, and then Mm. they start fighting immediately as soon as they get in the elevator. Lee Majors played a theater patron, uncredited. He's the former husband of Farrah Fawcett. He was Steve Austin, the $6 million man. He was Colt Seavers in 112 episodes of The Fall Guy, which is getting a feature film adaptation from Universal Pictures as we speak. And he plays himself in Scrooge, starring in The Night the Reindeer Died. It's Lee Majors, the $6 million band. Santa, is there a back way out of this place? Ryan O'Neill played another theater patron. He was a longtime partner of Farrah Fawcett's. Unfortunately, at the time of this film's release, she'd been dating O'Neill for two years and wouldn't divorce Majors until 82. He's the father of Tatum O'Neill. He leads the Bogdanovich double of What's Up Doc and Paper Moon. He was the titular Barry Lyndon in Kubrick's film and Oliver in Love Story opposite Ali McGraw. He recently reunited with Michael Wincott as Ryan in Knight of Cups. I haven't seen that one yet. That's a tarot card, right? Knight of Cups? Knight yeah. of Cups? Sure. I think that's everything for Circle of Two. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing fantasies, which IMDb describes like so. 16-year-old Anastasia and her adopted brother, Damir, live on a Greek island with their pervy grandfather. This is not even my words. These are the <laughs> words of the of the summary. She dreams about having a large antique bathtub, and he dreams about running a seaside resort, and they begin to fall for each other. We leave you now with a trailer, if there is one, for fantasies. Anastasia! Damir! Come here and look! Look at me! 
look at my tug. Get out of there. We have to work. Dommy, you come here first. I'm not going to get up until you come here. Come on. Okay, do you think you're clean now? Anastasia, I haven't time to play games. Now it's an important day and I must do important things. Oh, you're going to get it. Get back here. Anastasia, now come back here. Don't you leave. Anastasia, I'm giving you an order. I want 80,000 drachma. Do you have 80,000 drachma? You bit right through my ear. You're crazy. Crazy. You know I didn't mean to do that. Will you please listen, Damir? Please. No. Please. 